The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Now, about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothes became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared with him in glory and were speaking to him of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Now, Peter and the others with him were heavy with sleep, but as they fully awoke, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. Now, as the men were parting from them, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us build three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, for he didn't know what he was saying. Now a cloud, when he spoke, came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came from the cloud that said, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, they found Jesus alone. And they were silent. And they told no one in those days the things that they had seen. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Let us pray. Father, we believe that you inspired Luke to record these words. We believe that they had power in Luke's day. But we believe they have power for us this day if we will hear them. And so we pray, come Holy Spirit and open these words to us now, perhaps as never before, that we would be changed more and more to be like Christ. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to be seated. Where is our discipleship taking us? Where is our discipleship taking us? We're following Jesus. Those of us who've said yes to following Jesus, he's in the lead, we're following him. Where is it heading? Where is he leading us? What does it ultimately mean if we follow Jesus? Where will we go? Where is our discipleship leading us. For my family, uh, it was just over a year ago that our discipleship, our following Jesus, brought us to Texas. And we had a great uh, rest. Uh, we had a great vacation. Um, and, and I thank you for that needed rest to get a bit of a break and recharge. But I'll tell you, um, resting in this new place the Lord has led us to uh, was a much warmer experience resting here because we had a staycation and I'm pretty sure that next time we take a vacation, we're going straight to Canada. <laughs> and everyone keeps telling me, oh, this is not a typical Texas summer. I think I'm going to be here 20 years and people are still going to say, no, 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 it can get much, much hotter than this. But our discipleship can take us to good places. Like this, like us. We've seen in this last year the tremendous blessing of following the Lord here. And we can all think of examples in our lives where our discipleship, our following Jesus, has led us to good places. But if we take but a second, we can also realize that our discipleship has taken us into 
at times hard places, places full of pain and frailty. The journey of following Jesus is not one of being sort of ironclad and always joyful and always happy and feeling that everything is working out. In fact, it seems more and more that as we follow Jesus, this path of discipleship can include a lot of pain. There's a lot of pain in this room right now. A lot of stories right here that are hurting, that are feeling frail as disciples. While we were on vacation, some of you saw on Facebook, we had a horrible uh, tragedy. I mean, it wasn't a family member, but it felt kind of like a family member when our uh, bus driver from Ottawa, our school bus driver who had, you know, been the guardian of our children all those years going to school, you know, picking them up at the right of the driveway and taking them off. And you know as parents that trust you have and the prayers offered over that bus every day as they take your dearest ones with them. And this one who would stand in the gap for us and, and honk and, and scream at other drivers that were getting too close to her kids that took care of our kids, tragically killed in a bus accident. And we walked through that story and it just, it hurt and it was painful. And I know that there's people in this room who have been to funerals in the last few weeks of their own family members. And I know there's people in this room that are going to be going to funerals in the next few weeks for friends and family. And I know people in this room are feeling frail and broken and hurt. And this is, this is what it means to be a disciple, Jesus. I said yes to following you and there's a lot of pain. Where is our disciple taking us? Thank God for the Feast of the Transfiguration today. Because Jesus in this transfiguration moment gives us a picture of where this discipleship is heading. He gives us a picture of what the discipled life is ultimately about, where we're going, where we're heading, despite the pain, despite the frailty, despite the hardship now. In Romans 8, we read those words that Paul writes, and Paul's not writing trite words. These are not trite. Paul knows what suffering is when he says, I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The suffering of the present time is not worth comparing to the glory to be revealed to us. And that word glory is a, is, a, is a loaded term biblically. There's a lot in there. We bump into glory again and again in the Bible. And glory can be both the glory of God, but there's also the glory of man and the glory of creation. Really what glory means is everything about something or someone that shows how splendid and glorious and honorable and beautiful it is. That's when you see the glory of something, you're seeing their beauty, the splendor. And so we, we see that again and again in our lives. We talk about people and experiences we have that are glorious. Uh, we, again, uh, new immigrants, uh, got to experience our second 4th of July this year. Uh, but this year, we kind of felt like we really knew how to do it. The last year was kind of the warm-up. Uh, so we figured out, okay, here's how we do 4th of July. And so we were on our way to Kaboom Town right, to get the full measure, and as we're driving, uh, we're, we're seeing in the sky these jets doing circles, and out of the backs of the jets are, is all this colored smoke and colored streams, and we're just amazed because 
we just don't quite celebrate like that in Canada. We hadn't seen that before. And in the back of our van as we're driving down to Kaboom Town, our little, so our eight-year-old says, Daddy, thank you for bringing us to America. <laughs> that one went straight to Twitter. Um, I mean, that's the glory, looking at the glory of God's creation and human endeavor. But when we look at the glory that's revealed in the transfiguration, what we are experiencing now is nothing compared to the glory to be revealed. The full measure of God's glory revealed. Well, let's look at the transfiguration. We who may be in a place of pain and brokenness following after Jesus, going through a rough patch or looking back over a rough patch in our lives. Where is our discipleship heading? Well, it's heading to the Mount of Transfiguration. And on the Mount of Transfiguration from our text today, we find three things. We find Christ's glory, the glory of Christ Jesus, Christ's glory. But we also find the Christian's glory, our glory. And finally, we find the cost of that glory. Christ's glory, the Christian's glory, and the cost of that glory. First, Christ's glory, the glory of Jesus Christ. Verse 29 says that as Jesus was praying on that mountain, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothes became dazzling white. Now, the word dazzling there literally means lightning. So his clothes were like looking at lightning. In other words, why were the clothes like lightning? Because the man beneath the clothes was like lightning. It's his glory shining through the clothes. Looking at him is like looking at lightning. Now, Matthew and Mark, in their version of this story, have a key word that obviously seemed important because it ultimately is how we ended up naming this festival. They say he was transfigured. And it's a technical word. It means metamorphosis. It means changed, transformed. They began to see more of who Jesus was, more of the fullness of Christ in that moment. They could see his glory shining through, transfigured. And what they're seeing, just to be specific, because of the lightning image, because of the brightness, they're seeing the glory of God. And we know that because if you look back in Exodus, right, remember Moses up on the mountain, another mountain, Mount Sinai? He's got the Ten Commandments. And as he comes down the mountain, what's Moses' face doing? He's got to put a veil on it because his, most, his, his face is glowing. When Moses came down from the Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he'd been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. His face was reflecting what he'd seen. Right? He'd been in the presence of God. He'd been in, you could say, in the presence of lightning brilliance. And he came down and his face was reflecting the glory. Now let's be clear. Jesus is not reflecting the glory of God here. What we realize in this text is Jesus is the source of the glory. I mean, that's why in verse 32, it says they saw his glory. Not reflected glory. I mean, they don't even understand what they're seeing. 
I mean, that's why Peter ends up putting his foot in his mouth. He doesn't quite understand that they are beholding God himself. The glory that they are seeing is not reflected. It's actually God's glory right in front of them. And again, that's why Moses and Elijah, this reference to Peter getting his foot in the mouth, you've got to ask, well, what's that all about? You see, Peter doesn't quite understand in this moment who he's dealing with. I mean, they're, they're, they're figuring it out. Maybe it's not until the day of the resurrection that finally Peter says, oh my goodness, that thing on the mountain, now it makes sense. I mean, isn't it, it's not surprising at the end of the text, it says that they were silent and they didn't tell anyone in those days what they'd seen. I mean, what were they going to say? You go off on a prayer retreat with Jesus for a couple days up on the mountain and you come down and you're like, okay, everybody, we were up on the mountain and... Um, uh, never mind. I mean, how do, you, how do you possibly explain this? And, and Peter's moment here where he puts his foot in his mouth and he says, verse 33, he says, um, you know, Lord, it's good that we're here. You know, let's make a tent, a tabernacle, a home, a shelter for you and for Moses and for Elijah. And now Peter's thinking, Look, I, I'm being industrious. I'm being thoughtful. You know, Jesus just told me uh, a few ch- verses ago that I am Petros. I am the rock, and he's going to build his church on me. Okay, so now I'm going to be that church. I'm going to be that leader, and we're going to start building churches. One for Jesus, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And he gets kind of rebuked, doesn't he? Have you ever wondered why he gets rebuked? I mean, it's, it, it, you're saying, come on, you know, Peter's trying. It's a nice gesture. Except... Again, he's thoroughly misunderstanding who he's dealing with. Here's the point. Some people have said, oh, Peter's sin is that he wanted to capture that mountaintop experience and he just wanted to stay there and didn't want to go back down to the nitty gritty of the world. And, and we've all heard sermons like that and that's very good pastoral application. I just don't think it's actually true to the text. It wasn't because he wanted to stay on the mountain that was the problem. It's that he thought that Jesus deserved the same size home as Moses and Elijah. You see, what he's saying is, hey, Jesus, it must be pretty exciting for you that Moses and Elijah showed up. I mean, they're the two big guns of Israel. So, you know, let's build you a house just the same size as them. He thinks he's bringing Jesus up to their level. He doesn't realize he's dealing with the one that called Moses and Elijah into existence. This is why in verse 35, the cloud shuts Peter up and says, this is my son, He doesn't get a shack the same size as Moses and Elijah. This is the son of God. And so it is that we're seeing with Christ's glory on that Mount of Transfiguration. It is God's own glory on display. And another sermon at another time is all about the fact that you've got human beings seeing God in his glory and they don't die. I mean, there's grace and mercy on the cross right there. But that's for another time. Maybe next week. But for now... This is Christ's glory. You know, isn't it amazing that John, one of those three witnesses, not many years later, is going to write his gospel. And as he opens his gospel, do you think he's thinking about this transfiguration moment when he writes these words? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and all things were made through him. And verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. 
I mean, this is who they're beholding on the mountain. They're beholding Christ's glory. In that moment, they're getting a picture of Jesus' beauty, everything that makes Jesus splendid and wonderful and honorable and beautiful. They're seeing it all in that moment. And you know, it's interesting, as someone who didn't always believe, you know, as someone who got converted to the faith, when I talk to skeptics, there's many different angles you can begin that conversation with someone who's a skeptic. And if you're skeptics today, I'll be in the fellowship hall, we can get some coffee. Um, seriously, the, the reality is one of the areas that we can look at is Jesus' own life. I mean, when you examine Jesus' life, especially when you're comparing worldviews, different religions and different worldviews, you know, I'm able to say, look, look, at, look at the man's life. L- look at what Jesus did. Look at what Jesus said. Look at how Jesus was with people and how he lived out his life. And as you begin to examine his life, as I found, you find no other life that's in comparison, no other life that's as beautiful, no other life that's as rich and full and honorable and glorious. They're seeing everything about Jesus on display. They're seeing Christ's glory. But as amazing as that is on the Mount of Transfiguration, there's more. See, they're not just seeing Christ's glory, but Jesus takes them up the mountain to show them their glory, the Christian's glory, the Christ follower's glory. He takes them up the mountain to show them a picture of where this discipleship journey is heading. Where is he leading them? And we know this because when you look at verse 28, it begins with some very clear language. Verse 28, the beginning of this Mount of Transfiguration moment, begins with these words, after these sayings, Jesus took Peter, John, and James up the mountain. And you want to say, well, then what sayings? Because clearly the sayings that Jesus had just said seem important enough for Luke to link these two episodes together. Jesus has just said some things and now he's going to take them up on the mountain. In other words, Jesus has just taught them something and now says, let's now go on a field trip. I got to show you something. And what is it that Jesus has been teaching them about? In the verses that lead up to the Mount of Transfiguration moment, Jesus has been teaching these disciples about what it means to follow him. What it means to be his disciple, to be his apprentice. Those famous words from verse 23, if anyone would come after me, literally, if you want to follow me, come after me, you must, take, you must deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. See, Jesus has been talking to them about what it means to follow him and that it's not going to be that easy. Deny self, take up your cross. This is the promise not of health and wealth, but of a cross and self-denial, but you get to follow me. And so if you're like me, you're saying, Jesus, okay, pretty high calling here. Um, I'm not sure I can do this. And he says, let me show you something. I'm calling you to this. Let me show you something. Come up the mountain with me. If you want to live into what it means to follow me with all the hardship involved, come up the mountain. Let me show you something. You see, when Jesus says, follow me, what he's really saying, like any rabbi, is come and live my life. He's saying, come and live my life. You see, in Jesus' day, rabbis were all over Israel. And there would be disciples following after rabbis. 
They would follow the rabbi. They'd say, I want to be like the rabbi. They would be his disciples, his apprentices. And they would want to learn how to read scripture, read the Torah like that rabbi read the Torah. They would want to learn to teach and to preach like that rabbi. They'd want to learn to live their lives just like that rabbi to the point that they'd actually want the mannerisms, the inflection of voice. They'd probably decorate their homes the same way. They wanted to be like that rabbi. That's what discipleship meant to the point of we have a friend who's been a missionary in Israel who's seen rabbis to this day in Israel walking around with their disciples and the disciples are following right behind. They're, they're watching everything. They're trying to mimic and imitate to the point where he saw one rabbi go into a restaurant to use the restroom and the rabbi actually had to stop his disciples and say, you follow me no further. I'm going to do this one on my own but we want to be just like him, exactly like him. And see, by the way, restroom is the weirdest word we've learned in America. We go to, we go to restaurants and we ask where the washroom is because that's what my Canadian you know, training was all about. You know, you learn to speak Canadian or the Queen's English. You ask for the washroom. Down here, they look at me like I'm crazy to the point where there's been times when people will give me no answer. And I'm like, you, you know what I'm saying. It's that other thing, that, that restroom, which I'll say, it doesn't make any sense. How often are you resting there? For me as a Canadian, I wash in there. I don't rest too much in there. But the point being, just call it the loo, okay? So he stopped them at the loo. The point being, these disciples want to be just like the rabbi. And so it is for Jesus. When he says, come follow me, he's saying the exact same thing. Come live my life, my whole life. Everything about who I am, every bit of me, I want you to live in your own lives. I want my life to become your life in every way. And we see this when we look at other descriptions of our future life with Jesus. Matthew 13, 43, for example. Amazing text that sounds just like the transfiguration. Matthew 13, 43, Jesus says, Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. The righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. I mean, Jesus is talking about the future hope, the future life of his followers. The righteous is they're going to shine like the sun, just like he's shining on that mount. If you don't believe me, we'll go to 2 Corinthians 3. 2 Corinthians 3, those beautiful words by Paul talking about what it looks like for our life to be growing more and more like Christ. What does he say? He uses a specific word, the same word from Matthew and Mark, transfigured. Your Bible doesn't say transfigured. It's the identical word though. Listen to this. And we all with unveiled faces, not veiled like Moses, but now unveiled. We all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transfigured into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Paul says we're being transfigured just like Jesus was transfigured on that mountaintop. In other words, the transfiguration moment of Christ's glory is not just Christ's glory. It's a picture of your glory and my glory, a Christian's glory. This is where our discipleship is leading us. His life fully living in us. For those of you who took Revelation with me this past year, you know I get really excited about the word telos. 
It's a Greek word. It's one of my favorite Greek words. Um, it means the end. It means destiny. And by the way, my wife mentioned to me not long ago, that she said, you know, pretty much in every sermon, you talk about your favorite Greek word, but it's always a different word. So I, I'm not sure what to do with that. I, I, I guess I just like Greek. But the point is that this is a great word. Maybe I've got to start saying a great word. But this word tell us it means your destiny. It means where you're heading. What's, what's, where, where's it all going? And Jesus says in Revelation 22, verse 13, he says, I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. And when he says beginning and the end, he uses that word end, tell us. And, and what he's saying is, I am your destiny. I'm your future. I mean, the telos of an acorn is an oak tree. The telos of a Christian is Christ-likeness. And that's why I pray at the beginning of every sermon that we would be, because of God's word, because of God's spirit, we would be more like Christ because that's our telos. That's where this discipleship journey is leading us. It's leading us to his life living in us. I love how C.S. Lewis in this great essay called The Weight of Glory talks about the implications of what it means to live in community with a bunch of people who are one day going to shine like Jesus. And when he uses the gods and goddesses reference, he doesn't mean pluralism. He just means, you know, this, this living Christ-like lives. Listen to what he says about this. He says, it is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature, which if you saw it now, would be, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or other of these destinations. It is in light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus is showing his church not just his own glory, but the glory that is promised for us if we are in Christ. But if you're like me, you might be saying, how can that be? And here I end. How can it be? How can it be? Well, there's a cost to take a broken, inglorious creature like me and to turn me into a glorious creature like Christ. There is a great cost, a cost of glory. And it's nothing less than verse 31. You see, Moses and Elijah are there talking with Jesus. And uh, there's a whole other sermon I could preach about why Moses and Elijah. But really, let's just say it's the law and the prophets represented in this moment. Moses, the law, Elijah, the greatest of the prophets. They're meeting there, in other words, to say what's about to be said, what's about to be discussed, the entire law and the prophets is pointed to. This is the culmination of biblical history. Everything is pointed to this moment. And what is that moment? Verse 31, they were talking to him. The law and the prophets are talking to Jesus about his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. His departure. 
And of course, again, fabulous word. In the Greek, it's not departure. It's his exodus. The law and the prophets have gathered together for this moment to say, you are about to accomplish your exodus in Jerusalem. And it is only a few verses after the Mount of Transfiguration moment that Jesus says, or Luke tells us, verse 51, that when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. In other words, transfiguration happens. Moses and Elijah are there. They're talking about his exodus. And from that point on, the whole rest of the book is about going to his exodus. And what is his exodus? Well, unlike Moses, who was leading a people out of bondage to slavery from human masters, Jesus' exodus is the exodus that leads us from the bondage to sin and death into new life. Jesus' exodus is the journey to take our ingloriousness, all the brokenness, all the sin in his own body so that we can receive his glory and his sinless and righteous life. Jesus is giving us freedom. And you know, we use all kinds of language about this act, don't we? We can talk about salvation. We can talk about redemption, justification, and they're all a host of sermons to unpack each one of those words. Do you know what I love about Exodus? Is this language is the language of breaking bondage. That I've been in bondage to sin, in bondage to brokenness, in bondage to the inglorious reality of who I am. And Jesus comes and frees me. You know that Charles Wesley hymn, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's nights. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon filled with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. That's Exodus. And that's what Jesus comes to accomplish for us. And it's not just an event that takes place now, this transfiguration. Remember those words from 2 Corinthians chapter 3? That we are being transfigured now in present tense into the same image of Christ from one degree of glory to the next. Moment by moment, bit by bit, Jesus' life is growing up in us. His glory is being revealed in us. We are living into the reality of what it means to live his glorious life. We do it now, bit by bit. And you know when it finally, finally comes effect, to effect? And this is, the, this is the hope within our frailty, within our brokenness. If you're suffering in frailty or disappointment or disaster or death, you know when the final moment that completes this glory-making of Christ in you? It's at your death. It's at my death. That's why for us, Death, as hard as it is, is not an absolute tragedy. But it is, as a friend of mine likes to say, a promotion to glory. We are being promoted in that moment to glory. Those words which we read 
in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you're going to a funeral this week, if you've been to a funeral in the last couple weeks, these words from 1 Corinthians 15, it's all about the change, the transfiguration that is to come. Paul writes these words as I close. Behold, I tell you a mystery. These are funeral words. I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable or ingloriously. And we shall be changed for this perishable body must put on the imperishable. This inglorious body must put on the glorious. And this mortal body put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death has been swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, hear this, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing in the Lord that your labor is not in vain. Where is this discipleship journey leading us? In the midst of pain, in the midst of struggle, in the midst of death, where is this discipleship journey leading us? It's leading us to the Mount of Transfiguration. It's leading us to behold the glorified Christ. It's leading you and I to his life. This discipleship journey, come follow me, is leading us to glory. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.